0: Welcome to Lucky Paper Radio. I'm your host, Andy, and I'm here with my co-host, Anthony, fully vaxxed and ready to crack Pax Maddox.
1: Let's not be too hasty. I have to wait uh, two weeks? Yeah, two weeks, I think, is what two the, the
0: CDC still recommends. But, um, but I have as much RNA in me as I'm gonna get. <laughs> you're all RNA'd up. Ravnica allegiance is c- coursing through your veins.
1: Oh, yeah. Hmm. Weird how that works out.
0: Yeah, so so far my memories made at the Baltimore Convention Center are Mm -hmm. going to the SEG Con, no Mm -hmm. SEG Open, to play, what's the name of the drafts you can just do at any time? Side events? Yeah, but there's a name for like, it's on demand, to do on demand Uh drafts, Mm -hmm. and then getting vaccinated twice. That's all I've ever done at the Baltimore Convention Center. Same. Never been to the furry convention, or anything else that happens there. There was like
1: a craft one, didn't we go to the craft thing?
0: Mm, not that i remember like a decade and a half ago you're talking about the uh i think i know you're talking about the like pen and ink one ink and print ink and paper is that what you're talking about i have no idea anyway new memories made at the baltimore convention center
1: it's a weird transition it's actually not that dissimilar just like tables of people sitting around looking across the table (laughs) except instead of uh you know looking at magic (laughs) cards they're uh vaccinate each other up getting
0: poked I I shared with you when we went down to get our first vaccine uh, three weeks ago now that the scene at the Baltimore Convention Center is at present very optimistic. It's like, look look at all of this society working and people here getting vaccinated. These people are like living their lives and doing their thing and it's it's working, right? The system is doing the thing it's supposed to do. But if you'd gone back just 12 months to like, I don't know, last February, March and been like, hey, by the way, in a year – you're going to be in a line of people around the block, spaced six feet apart, all masked up to get into some weird queue to then be given vaccines to then go sit in a uh, football field of folding chairs, grids all laid apart by six feet. Like it's just a very dystopian. It is so dystopian. It's so dystopian.
1: And I've read a lot of dystopias. Dystop, <laughs> you know what I mean?
0: Yes. I don't think they're. I think it's a dystopian novel. I don't think you read a dystopia. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. That's what. I <laughs> anyway. Said. On this episode of Lucky Paper Radio, we're going to be talking about the mechanics of Strixhaven and perhaps related topics. Our set review episode is going to come up probably next week. We're a little bit delayed on account of life, just, <laughs> just fucking life. But I want to make sure we give that the attention it deserves, so that will come up probably next week. But I think there's a fair bit for us to dig into just talking game designer hat about the mechanics and the set and what we think about them. Before we do that, though, we are going to jump into our Pack 1, Pick 1 from a listener-submitted cube. And this week, we are doing the Awesome Cube, a cube that has its own blog dedicated to it, which we'll put in the show notes. This is designed by Captain Awesome, and this is a um, this is a 720-card vintage cube, which I don't think we've ever done a 720 before. It's the biggest cube we've ever done a Pack 1, Pick 1 from. So looking at the list, I had to reset some of my expectations around densities of cards because. It's a really big cube, so gotta have a lot of cards to fill it out. The pack is Revelark, Notion Rain, Enrays Forerunners, Ugin the Spirit Dragon, Starnheim Unleashed, Order of Midnight, Metallic Mimic, Spellseeker, Is It Signet, Mana Crystalline Crawler, Monastery Mentor, Beanstalk Giant, Isamaru Hound of Conda, and Flooded Grove. What are you looking at, Anthony?
1: So, two things really stand out to me in this pack, and they are Ugin the Spirit Dragon and Starnheim Unleashed. Uh, I think that Starnheim Unleashed is just, you know, it's one of these newer cards. It's just extremely powerful, extremely flexible. I think wherever we end up going in this uh, draft, do we end up with a pretty aggressive deck or mid-range or control, I'm going to be happy having it at pretty much any time. So, that really stands out. Also, we've got the full art uh extended border version here, which is just really hard to pass.
0: Yeah, you just picked the two full art extended border cards that are prettiest. Oh yeah, good
1: good point. (laughs) I think you're a little biased here. (laughs) Although I do think this is the Ugin the Spirit Dragon from the Mythic Edition, is that right? And I think I kind of prefer the one from M21. Yeah, with the
0: wing kind of in the foreground wrapping around.
1: Anyway, we could argue about the ideal Ugin the Spirit Dragon printings all day, but at the end of the day, it's still a powerful card. This is what
0: the ideal Spirit Dragon body looks like. (laughs) I'm sorry if you can't handle it.
1: Uh, and it's similar, I think, actually to Endray's Forerunners, which is another very powerful card that stands out. But I feel like, you know, those are kind of interchangeable if I'm going to end up just drafting a, a ramp deck in, in this cube, I think. Maybe the other thing that stands out to me is uh, a Signet and a Monastery Mentor, which is actually a card that I feel like I've overrated in the past and have come down on a little bit and it yeah. doesn't seem like there's a a super like powered up white you know especially not with literal power. We're not going to do anything super broken with mentor. So I think I'm pretty close between Ugin and Starnheim and leaning towards Starnheim honestly.
0: Interesting. I I love Starnheim at least but I'm not quite as high on it as you are. Okay. Um Monastery Mentor is an interesting card because you know it's it, we're talking about a card that is very powerful played a lot in vintage mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. kind of messed up. But one of those cards that does... It's restricted in vintage, right? I believe so. One of those cards that does lose a bit of its appeal in limited versus constructed. You know, the the power level is very... It's very much built around. And so when you have the right. full power right. to construct your deck entirely around it, the ceiling is quite a bit higher than, uh, than it is in limited, where there's going to be... Your, your deck is never going to be an ideal build around. Ideal monastery mentor deck. So as much as I love that card, I'm also not particularly keen on that. I um, Looking at this list, I think that it's kind of a medium speed cube list. There isn't an overwhelming number of 1 and 2 drops in the aggressive colors. And again, I had to kind of reset my expectations looking at a 720 card cube versus a 360 card cube. I also would expect a relatively high power delta in the cards we're going to see in these packs. Just because, again, the cube is twice as big as it needs to be for an 8-person draft. So... There's, you know, twice as many cards, probably more cards that are on the lower end of that power level spectrum, looking at stuff in this pack like Crystalline Crawler or, you know, Beanstalk Giant, maybe. I think that card's actually pretty decent. You know, cards that maybe wouldn't be in the 360 card the top 360 cards in the cube that are gonna show up in these packs. And given all those facts, I um I am gonna take the signet, and it's not particularly close for me because I think this is going to be an environment that's going to reward a little bit more greed. There's a lot of 4, 5, and 6 drops in all the colors. And card like Starnheim Unleashed, which I'm really high on, I think for as much as I love scalable cards, they do go down slightly the slower and less the less punishing an environment is. Like if you hmm. basically... the, the power are like the- saying, that the power of it is the flexibility, and if, if
1: you're expecting to be able to cast it at 8 mana all the time, you'd probably just rather have Ugin.
0: Exactly. Yeah. If if the games are going to go to a point where you're treating this as just a card that's going to cost six, seven, eight mana, there are better things at six, seven, eight mana where its real power comes into play. Is like I'm dying. I need to cast it as a just a sorcery and make a make a four four. You know.
1: At the same time, that flexibility does come into play when other people are just trying to do these big splashy things, and you can just say, "Well, here's my four four on turn three. Deal with that."
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't think it goes down much, but I think it does go down a little bit. Even still, like as much as I like Starnheim Unleashed, this is like the constant battle of talking about new cards that come out in uh, in sets. Because it was one of the cards I was highest on from Call Time, and I still like it quite a bit. But highest on from Call Time doesn't rank it very highly, and all across my entire white section in my own cube, for example, like I like the card, interesting, yeah, but it's still bottom six, seven, eight cards in my white section, I think. But it's just that because my cube is power optimized and it's been around for many years. It, uh, it's hard for a card, a new card to break into the really appealing cards in a color. So, yeah, it just it's hard to kind of calibrate expectations. It is one of the cards I was highest on from Kaldheim, but not as high on it in this pack and not super excited to take it. Ugin's great. Ugin's very powerful. It's actually kind of not that interchangeable as an 8-drop. Like, there's a lot of games that Ugin will save you where a lot of 8-drops would not. But that said, I just, I'm not going to start on an 8-drop, I don't think. I think I want to be in some kind of ramp deck or controlling deck that's plenty to go to the late game. Before I take an eight mana cost spell, so I'm just gonna take a Signet, and whether that means I end up base blue something or you know a three or four color greedy deck, I'm just really happy to have something that will allow me to enable to cast the four, five, six mana spells in this cube, and also allow me to take the more powerful cards out of the later packs, and not be kind of you know stuck with a specific narrow strategy, and be forced to play some of the you know the the, the bottom half of those 720 cards in terms of power level.
1: Yeah, that's fair. Signets are good. I feel like we, in a lot of the cubes that we've been playing, are kind of, like, cutting down on them or trying to speed up the format in order to sort of mitigate the fact that in a lot of cube environments, they're just kind of busted. Uh, so, yeah, I think coming into this, if I was drafting, I would not be on it, but I, I think after this conversation, you've t- talked me into
0: it. Sometimes I feel like I'm too compelling, and you need to just fight me more on these things. Take Ugin. Take Ugin. <laughs> you know you want to play Ugin. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like... When I first got into Cube, Signets were regarded as very, very powerful, right? First pickable mm-hmm. almost all the time in like powerful cube environments, like the Magic Online Vintage Cube. And I made my cube kind of in the kind of in the the shape or in the sort of inspired by the Magic Online Vintage Cube. And the very first version of my cube did have all ten signets included in it. And I eventually ended up cutting down to just a handful of them because I had that sort of realization a lot of cube designers have where it's like Full cycles might seem nice and symmetrical, but in actuality, 10 two-mana rocks is just way too many two-mana rocks and a 360-card cube for what my goals were. And then, over the intervening years, my cube has gotten faster and faster and faster, such that I actually no longer really think the two-mana rocks are particularly appealing in my own environment anymore. This cube is quite different, though, and I think being closer to, you know, if we put like my cube and the Magic Online cube on a spectrum, or a map, I think... Uh, this cube is closer to the sort of magic online speed and like the way the games are going to play out. And so I I think that two mana spells are really relevant here. But basically, like as my cube has gone on and, you know, kind of grown and, and changed and evolved, the decks rely less and less on four and five and six mana spells. And especially that four mana spells, like that's where the signets come in, right? Like if you can go on turn two, play a signet and then into a really impactful four mana spell, then that's, you're getting your full value out of your signet. But if the three mana spells are the top of the curve for a lot of decks or just as impactful as the four and five mana spells, then a lot of the value falls off. So it's actually weird because, like, I think in some ways my cube is less powerful than the Magic Online Cube in that I don't run as many of the powerful cards Magic Online Cube includes, and yet... Cards like the Signets, which are really, really good in the Magic Online Cube, I think are much worse in my environment just because of the nature of how these games play out. Local Maxima, as Jet loves to say.
1: But the real question is which of these options is more awesome, a Stupid Mana Rock or a Giant Spirit Dragon? Okay,
0: to be fair, it is called the <laughs> Awesome Cube, designed by Captain Awesome, so I guess we have to dig Ugin. That's just how it goes. Easy. Problem solved. Thank you, Captain Awesome, for sending in your cube to Lucky Paper Radio for a Pack One Pick One segment. If you want to have your cube featured, dear listener, you can also have it on the show. Just send it to mail at luckypaper.co with your name and pronouns, and we'll do it. We'll do a Pack One Pick One. Can't stop us. We um we've been playing a little bit of Strixhaven sealed, and I want before we talk about the mechanics of the set, I wanted to say that I feel like spending a lot of time thinking about designing and playing cubes has made me feel like more magic than most people want to admit. If you have two players that understand kind of all of the foundational heuristics of of magic playing, you know, stuff like just basic sequencing, making sure you use as much of your mana on each turn as possible, you know, those kinds of things. Once you're at a certain like baseline level of magic competency, I feel like more formats of magic and more games of magic come down to variance than perhaps people would like to accept normally. Does that is that ring true to you at all?
1: Uh I see what you're saying. There's definitely a lot of variance especially in a format like sealed, but I, I don't know that I can agree that it is undervalued or under expected.
0: Here here's a way to ask the question. First of all, do you have a distinction in your head of like to me there's decisions that are kind of guided by by best practices by heuristics, mm-hmm. right sure, and those ones feel somewhat forced, where I think if you were to take me or you or any other person in our play group that is you know experienced playing magic and just kind of swap them in that we'd all make exactly the same decision in the exact same place and then I think there's other decisions and like you know and so those turns tend to go pretty quickly in you know cube or seal or wherever you're playing. And then there's other decisions where it's like here I feel like I'm actually making a decision. Like I, I I could see arguments for either either case. And I feel like the the decisions in a magic game kind of fit into these two kind of buckets for me. Does that does that feel true to you too or do you think it's more of a spectrum? Oh, it's definitely more of a spectrum, just like everything. But also
1: I think if you're going to say that uh, the majority of decisions fall into that first bucket. I definitely disagree with that. I mean, just having the the like rare and interesting experience um, of actually just being able to. Uh, so occasionally we'll play arena on Discord with the local play group and have be watching in and you know ribbing each other and making fun of each other's bad decisions which is something that you normally just don't get to do you know when we're playing in paper you can't lean over somebody's shoulder and be like well why don't you cast that card because their opponent's going to know about it so that's been really kind of an enlightening experience and there are constantly constantly turns where it's just like oh yeah there's this tiny edge that somebody else calls out a turn later that that i missed or someone else missed it's like or or just you know options of lines that you hadn't considered I, i think that at all levels, e- even when you have that experience and you think like, well, things are kind of following these heuristics, there are so many decisions to make. And if there are things that are like completely obvious, then you just get through that quickly and get to the more
0: interesting decisions. Maybe here's another way to put it. How many decisions do you feel like come down to there is an optimal decision that everyone would agree is optimal given enough, like if, if presented with all of the options versus a decisions where Equally skilled, experienced players could reasonably disagree on what the best line is given the information presented. Like, I feel like a lot of magic is just not making mistakes, and not making mistakes is really, really hard in a game that's complicated. But I oftentimes feel like those decisions are different from decisions where it's like here it wouldn't be a mistake to choose option A or option mm-hmm. B necessarily. But there's some obviously at the end of the day there is an optimal decision: time traveling supercomputer and whatnot. But I feel like. Oftentimes there's nowhere near enough information to determine what that optimal decision is. And then your decision you make as a player is different than the decision you make, where it's basically like, don't make a mistake, like don't screw up. And I've been punting a lot in all of our games and I've been very conscious of it. And so like those mistakes are definitely mistakes, but. I feel like those kinds of things are different from a decision where people could disagree about that. Yeah, is I mean, is that a bucket that makes sense to you? That's
1: fair. But I mean, I, I would never, in answer to you, the original way you phrased it, say be able to say like, what fraction of, of decisions fall into one bucket or the other. What I would just say is there are still plenty of places where I know that there are multiple decisions and there's a lot I have to learn. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I, I don't think we're approaching a place where we are getting into uh, this place of we're just playing backgammon and trying to, you know, optimize our correct decisions.
0: Yeah, I agree that I have so much to learn still, too. And I feel like what I need to learn more about playing Magic is about how to put myself in a mindset and a process to think about all of the decisions and, like, not miss something. I feel like that's one of the biggest holes in my game right now, is not missing something. Once I feel like I have all the options, I often feel like the right answer is somewhat obvious. Anyway, this is all to say that (laughs) if that is the distinction you make, and it doesn't sound like it really is in your head, But is that something you think about in your cube design? Like when you're choosing cards for a cube, like whether you want to create situations where there is reasonable disagreement on the optimal decision amongst experienced players, or is that not something that's even on your radar? Oh, totally. I mean, as soon as you put it that way, I say, absolutely yes. Like, one of the most satisfying uh,
1: conversations we had about my cube recently was when one player points out a card, you know, not even talking about a particular game or a draft, but just looking at the list, and one player is like, this card is absolutely busted. I will never pass this card. I, it is my number one pick all the time. And another player is like, well, I, I will never put that in the deck. <laughs> and it's like, wow, yeah. there's so much space to disagree about the power level of these cards and the way that they work with the other cards that that uh, the fact that we have that space to to make these interesting decisions is extremely satisfying. I definitely also but try. But not just and... a card evaluation, an actual
0: gameplay. I mean, like totally card evaluation. I agree. I love when people disagree on cards in my cube because it tells me that the meta game of playing my cube has not been like solved by my playgroup. group. Mm-hmm, like that no mm-hmm. one agrees that like this color is better or this strategy is is the best strategy. I lean into that disagreement on card evaluation. Totally. But I think which is, which is something awesome stuff. about
1: Cube that I really love that doesn't get talked about a lot. When we're playing a limited format, and I love limited, but after a couple of weeks, you know, people are listening to LR, they're watching 17 lands, there's kind of the sense of like, well, here's the ranking of the guilds or the colleges, and here's the kinds of strategies and the the, the pick order for cards. Uh, and even though that's complex and nuanced and interesting, it's also really rewarding to come to Cube where it's like, yeah, we don't know. We haven't had millions and millions of hours yeah. or whatever uh, of... of eyeballs and people trying to solve this format so really there's space for that disagreement
0: ultimately i think that is one of the best things about cube like i am somewhat nostalgic for the era of magic not that i was really old enough to be really playing during this time but part of me wishes here's here's what i'll say Part of me wishes that we didn't have the internet when it came to magic. I think it would be amazing.
1: Oh, I don't think you have to limit that just to magic.
0: (laughs) Okay, sure. Part of me wishes we didn't have the internet. It's it's definitely a thing I think about sometimes, but especially when it comes to, like, pre-releases. Like, if I could go to a pre-release with 20 players and none of us had ever seen a spoiled card, none of us had looked at the mechanics of the set, we were like, we are opening these packs for the first time and we are going to have to use our... In real time, card evaluation skills. We've not listened to the limited resources set review. We're just going to like figure this out. That to me is kind of... I mean, I hate you saying things like pure magic or whatever because it sounds like it's a weird gatekeeping thing. But that is, I think, one of the best iterations of the game. And the fact that every other format has that kind of metagaming and it's certainly less present in limited than constructed, which is why I do prefer limited over constructed. Have you been feeling a little bit wary of the 17 lands? stuff that's been gaining a lot of traction in yeah, the world. I mean, world. I,
1: I, I was thinking it would be awesome to have uh, Surkowicz on this podcast if he was interested. And, and we the, may still do that. The question I would want to ask him is uh, is this fun for you? <laughs> <laughs> and I think that Kind of rude, DBH. It's, it's kind of rude, but but what I what I would want to suss out is like, well, it's definitely interesting as like a person that's being able to do this data analy- analysis and uh, dig into these sort of metrics and come up with what are the right questions to ask. Like that's awesome, but as a consumer of that content, just to say like, yeah, here's the right answer. That's definitely sort of. It takes a little bit of the fun out of it to some extent.
0: Yeah, and part of my wariness is I think they have a long way to go before they Mm -hmm. can actually take a reasonable question and say, yeah, here's the right answer. And I think right now we're seeing a lot of people that are falling into that fallacy of being like, oh, "Oh, numbers, therefore this is correct. It's like, well, this this ranks higher in win percentage on... 17 lands therefore it is the correct pick and it's like well no there's a lot of confounding factors that have not been disentangled yet though i mean eventually they could theoretically get pretty close to being able to answer some questions like that with a high degree of certainty And I have no, like, zero criticism at all for any of the work they're doing. No, of course not.
1: Like, if if you can collect that data and you have the opportunity to analyze it, of course you are. Like, that's awesome.
0: It's it's inevitable. It's an inevitability of the the connected world. I just do sometimes wish you could play games in a non-connected world because... Well, but that's what we can do
1: with Cube. It's like, it's not a forced thing where we're saying, like, hey, everybody promise, don't listen to the set review. We know that LSV has all the hot takes and you need them. Uh, We can just say, like, well, here's an environment. Sure, some of us know some of the cards, but it really is, like, a pristine environment that... uh, you know, then again, I'm
0: saying that this if LR wanted to do a set review of
1: my cube, that would be a wild
0: experience. <laughs> yeah, I'd be curious to see. I mean, I think it's really hard to look at a list and suss out how it's it going to really play. It really is, yeah. Uh, it's like, you have to do so much translation in your mind of trying to like put yourself in the seat of a drafter and then imagine what your deck might look like. Imagine how that deck might play against other decks. There's a lot of mental gymnastics to try and actually suss that out. And I think it's actually, in some ways, I mean, it's not easier for constructed sets per se though most of them have far fewer unique cards than a cube and also if it's a singleton cube you know the the commons and uncommons drive limited and the rares mm-hmm. and mythics are kind of less important it's like if you get a great one cool but otherwise you know you're not going to see that many of them and you're not gonna see them reliably and so it's all about the commons and uncommons whereas in cube you don't really have that idea unless you're breaking singleton so every card has to be kind of evaluated on the same playing field so i think it's really hard to do It'd be really difficult to do the kind of thing that limited resources does for limited sets for a cube and sit down and talk about every single card for three hours and how viable you think it is and what decks you think are going to be successful because... There's so much to to unpack.
1: And I think a lot of the knowledge is less portable. Like, if you're playing a limited set and you see a giant growth, you know, there's a giant growth, there's a fight spell, there's a burn spell. Mm -hmm. You can use that as a starting point, as a heuristic, to say, like, well, okay, here's how good it is in most sets, and then adjust from there. And cube can be just, like, so drastically different, where it's like, here's this archetype that doesn't exist in any limited set, but might fit here. Yeah. I guess the last thing, uh, in response to one of your earlier questions you were asking about, do we try and curate... uh, complexity or complex decision making right is that is that one of the questions you're asking
0: well yeah not just not necessarily just complex because the kind the distinction i'm trying to make you can have complex or simple decisions on both sides of the line i'm trying to draw there's one kind of complex decision where it's like the board is really complicated but once you have spent all the time to consider all of your options the answer is obvious and so that can Hmm. be really complicated but not the distinction i'm trying to draw between like here's the decision and it's not clear what the right move is, and you can have those decisions be very simple or very complicated, and you can have decisions that are very simple or very complicated. That it is pretty obvious what the right move is once you figured it out. I
1: think those buckets would be very different for different people. So to use the the most extreme example, tic tac toe is still a game to somebody that doesn't know the the basic to principle. stupid children,
0: <laughs> right? We've all been Idiot stupid children, babies. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: but once you know the like. There's just a a pattern you follow and you can't lose tic-tac-toe, then it's no longer really a game. It's just like following through the system and making these optimal decisions. And so I think that adding more complexity and more opportunity for different lines, especially if, you know, they span over multiple turns or rely on uh, the variance of what, you know, uh, percentage of drawing certain effects from your deck is, you definitely create more opportunity for a player like myself who is not playing at this high, high level to have meaningful decisions, even if they would be obvious to somebody much more experienced.
0: Yeah, I guess another way to put it is that I think a very slow, mid-range, grindy cube with, like, not that many proactive decks, not not aggro really present, would lead to really complicated decisions, mm-hmm. but the decisions are not the kinds of decisions I am trying to prioritize in my cube. It's like, all right, here's a board. There's eight creatures on each side. We each have four cards in hand, and it's, like, trying to figure out how you, like, break through and actually get an advantage in that puzzle. That's to true. There's, me, there's a
1: complexity where it's not... You know, weighing my options, having sort of a statistical approach to, if I draw one of these three cards, I have this line. If I have one of these three cards, I have this line. It's like it feels almost more like homework when you're evaluating a giant board exactly. like that. Exactly, yes.
0: That's the kind of thing I'm trying to avoid, where it's like a really complicated decision, but the optimal answer is pretty obvious. And the kind of decisions I want to leave my players with is like, alright, it's turn two. I'm playing blue. Do I cast this Ponder or Preordain, or do I hold up this Counterspell, given that I have no other instance to use my mana on in the next turn? And, like, based on the number of lands in my hand still that I can play and how good my opponent's two drops I expect it to be and whether or not I can beat them once they're resolved, like, that's a decision that is very simple, right? Like, I only have two options, like, cast preordain or not. Yeah. But a very complicated decision in the sense of trying to actually figure out what the right line is there is not easy. And those are the kinds of decisions I want to increase in my cube. And those are also the kinds of decisions that, frankly, and this could be my bias or just being blind that I oftentimes feel like are not present in sealed or normal draft. Like they're less present in normal magic, non cube magic. than I at one point thought they were until I feel like my lens on those decisions was changed by playing so much cube and like looking for them in my cube drafts and games had like a- attuned me to them and then looking for them in other places. I'm like, Oh yeah, I feel like there's not that many of those kinds of decisions here. There's like a lot of, Hey, don't fuck up decisions where it's like, <laughs> don't make a mistake and miss that. They have this reach death touch creature. But, uh, but there's not as many like little decisions like that, that actually really matter. Interesting.
1: Yeah. I'm definitely not at that level. There's still plenty of interesting
0: decisions for me to try and, uh, try and make And in- I could just be missing them, them all it. too. That- that's entirely possible. <laughs> Let's move on to the mechanics of Strixhaven and talk about those. Do you want to? Um, do you have this uh this page up on the mothership with the mechanics? Oh my god, I haven't actually. Usually, I'm so
1: excited. You know, most people are excited to look at spoilers and see all the cool cards. I love to see the release notes and uh, get into what are all the rules changes and the. Little I did
0: read of... the comprehensive rules changes with the set this time around, and it's uh it's so fun to read the little little things yeah. that were changed. Anyway, I sent you the mechanics article. We'll take them in that order, I think, if that's okay. So all right, let's do it. Our uh, The first mechanic in Strixhaven is learn and lesson. And uh, this is a keyword action, learn. And what learn does is it allows you to go from outside of the game, so your sideboard, and get a lesson card, which is a subtype on instant and Sorceries, and put it into your hand. So this is like a, a thing that's triggered by spells or abilities or something and basically it lets you draw a card, but the card you're drawing is a card from outside of the game in your sideboard which it's i'm I'm thinking of of wish cards like burning wish Wish, glittering wish those cards that let you go to your sideboard and get a card from outside the game but this mechanic limits the set of cards you can get which i think is a much safer design space to play with the playing with the get cards from outside the game area uh has a lot of potential knock-ons in like older formats and constructed magic where there's all kinds of cards that could be there and all kinds of interactions to consider but this, limiting that to cards with just this, this subtype, is uh, certainly a way to explore the mechanic, which I think is a lot safer. What do you think of Learn and Lesson?
1: I think it's really interesting. Um, definitely Unlimited, in I think it plays out very well. You know, you get these over effects, but you, obviously, you get to draw extra cards if you build your deck around them and draft around them. And I also think it's interesting, specifically, we're going to talk about Magecraft. It was very much designed as a way to allow you to get more spells in your deck without just compromising on, you know, not having enough creatures to have a functional game of Limited. Yeah. Um, so basically one of your spells will draw you another spell and you end up getting to trigger them a couple times. In Cube, I think it's interesting, a lot of people immediately leapt on to, well, let's do this a slightly different way, like let's implement Learn and Lesson uh, and just give everybody a sideboard that has a complete list or, uh, you know, maybe there's some other way that people get access to these lessons. And I, I'm a little bit interested in why people jump to that so quickly and I, I don't think it's a bad thing i think that'll play just fine sure um but i i wonder if if the reason people thought about that was that it sounds like an extremely parasitic mechanic um that's a dangerous word we shouldn't say that let's just say no extremely... i think this is
0: one of the only actual like okay i mean the, the word parasitic is thrown around a lot in the cube design community And we don't have a formal definition because there is no Merriam-Webster for cube, for magic lingo.
1: Well, let's maybe break it down and just say a mechanic that depends on something else. If you have a lesson card, sure, it does something, but uh, effectively you're not going to play it on its own. It requires a host to work.
0: Right, yeah, that is the that's where the name came from, I think. But like the way that it's used by R and D, as Mark Rosewater has said on his blog, is just to refer to a mechanic that only works inside of the set and doesn't work outside of the set. And sure, yeah. It's it, it's very clear to me the the etymology of that name, where it actually came from, and you can kind of see how people have adapted it and expanded it a little bit to cover other kinds of concepts and mechanics in Cube. But this is certainly parasitic, right? Like learn doesn't do anything without lessons, and so right. and right now this is the only set with learn and lessons in them, and so you have to be playing cards from Strixhaven for this mechanic to do anything. Though a lot of the lesson cards, you could run just as cards in your cube, the same way that lots of arcane spells are run in cubes where there's no splice onto arcane or no arcane spell triggers. So that could just be a weird subtype that you could just ignore, I guess, if you wanted to.
1: So I would push back, though, and say that it's a lot less parasitic than it looks, at least in the way it actually plays out. So I learned a lesson uh, from Unstable. Is that the name of the last unset? Yeah, Yeah, so so. it had the um, contraption mechanic where you had some cards that could assemble contraptions, you had a separate contraption deck, and that similarly, it seems like this mechanic where, you know, I need to draft this card A and card B, and if I don't get them together, then these cards don't really do anything, and... In recently building a cube that had a bunch of un-cards in it, I realized this mechanic is actually a lot less parasitic than I realized, because really, in the draft, I just need to draft these two cards, one Wrench Rigger and one Farrieri, the premier, uh, premier contraption, And then my fairy area always works. If I draw my one Ren Trigger, it's just like it's augmented that one card in my deck. I don't have to draw both of them. And so, I mean, compare that to a mechanic that people are very comfortable with or an archetype uh, like Splinter Twin or Kiki Jiki. People are very willing to put those two cards in a cube and say, well, you have to have both of these cards. Maybe there's a little bit of redundancy for one side of this combo or the other. But if you don't draw both of them, these cards don't really function. Uh, That's not the case with these lessons. You only have to draw one half of it. So... Sure, it does take up some, you know, slots in the draft, as as people will refer to it. But if you draft both those pieces, you're it's not going to fail for you, right? Yeah. Uh, and I think it's actually that's the really fun part about learning uh, and lessons. I don't actually know how to refer to this mechanic. Um, is that it? It offers you a lot of uh, interesting choices in the draft where you can say, well, I can pick this lesson up now, and then maybe if I get a learn card later, it it will bump that up in my card choice and sort of. Uh, I alter my pick rankings as I go, which is what I really, really look for in, in uh, a cube that I'm intending to draft.
0: Yeah, I think your point of comparing it to Splinter Twin combo is very relevant. Those cards are not literally non functional outside mm-hmm. of the combo, but in a lot of the powerful cubes where they're played, like you're not playing a Kiki Jiki for value. And especially right? the other half. You're not just putting a, pe- a Pestermite near it. Deceiver your deck. Exarch, you know, even worse, right? Like at least Pestermite is kind of a decent tempo creature if you're hey, playing I a in my cube. <laughs> blue tempo deck, but Deceiver Exarch is, you know, I'm not going to do a lot in the, a lot of the environments where that combo is present. So, yeah, like, and th- those fail cases are not so much different than like the fail case of learn. Which brings me to the one thing I love about this mechanic. I, I should say, when I first saw this mechanic, I was kind of uh, on it. I was like, mm-hmm. I was like, it feels very parasitic. And I also am not super hyped about the cards that play with the outside the game space. I think it's a little bit of a weird. It, to me, it has like a some practical considerations the same way that like double face cards do where you know, it's just mm. a space you have to like define like cause a lot of cubes will augment it by like just giving you l- lesson cards so it's a thing you have to like describe to your players when sure. you're talking about it which is kind of frustrating but
1: two things well not frustrating but i think that i'm always cautious about that like i feel like if you're gonna explain to somebody who's sitting down to draft a cube for the first time i feel like you can give them like three custom rules or you know extra things. Um and for me I like to like say uh hey keep your deck together after so I can review deck lists and that's like already one of my custom things to explain. (laughs) Exactly. Uh make sure you get your tokens so I can I can maybe explain booster tutor is kind of my one
0: Exactly. That's your one (laughs) your one accommodation. Yeah. But um I love the fail case of Learn. I am so glad they gave it a fail case, which is that if you cannot get a lesson or choose not to get a lesson Mm -hmm. out of your outside of the game area if i had your sideboard you could just rummage discard a card and draw a card and which i i haven't played a lot of
1: uh of this set yet uh for again life reasons um but i don't think i've seen anybody do that yet
0: (laughs) i haven't i have i've caught myself forgetting i can do it Mm -hmm. and being like that actually might be the right thing to do even though i have decent lessons in my sideboard Mm -hmm. i should like keep that in mind in certain situations Another one of those examples of like a complicated decision where it's like that actually would be optimal you just got to remember you can do it because right, yeah. this can happen so infrequently that you just have to remember that that's an option available to you. It's but, nice
1: that you don't get into this clunky situation of, like, ooh, do I really want to put three learn cards in my deck if I only have two lessons? Like, even if you right, draw the exactly. third, you're going to be fine.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I love that fail case. It reminds me of the fail case on that that green cantrippy card from a, from the last set. I think it was Kaldheim that basically said, you know, look at the top couple cards of your library to get a creature or a land. Or, if you don't do that, you mm-hmm. may just draw a card. Uh, and I, I love that kind of fail case. and I like taking these abilities and just making them less variable, right? Like, um, you know, if you look at a card like Augur of Bolus, mm-hmm. that's the two-mana, one-three, enter the battlefield, look at the top four cards of your library, get an instant or sorcery card, and put it into your hand. If you hit, the card is great. Really, mm-hmm. really good. Mm-hmm. You know, compare that to something like um, Seagate Oracle, which is a Three mana, one three. That looks at the top two and put one of them into your hand. You know that's a card that much lower ceiling. I don't think it's seen any constructive play to my knowledge of any of any substance, but never fails, right? Like right. in the fail case on Augur of it kind of it's kind of a real feel bad. And so I really like when they make when they balance these cards so that the ceiling's a little lower and the floor is higher and it's just a little narrower in the band of what it does because I feel like it leads to less blowout, swingy situations. There were the sort of outcome of the game is decided by whether or not you triggered your armor of boluses that you cast three times in the first couple turns or whether you didn't which can something you something it might be an optimal decision but you as a player don't have any agency over which can feel bad i think sure
1: i think it also fits really nicely in a flavor stance a flavor perspective um i think it was on the 540 they pointed out that there is one more lesson than there are learned cards i think there's 21 21- learn cards in 20 lessons which is just sort of this beautiful like there's always a little bit more to learn after you've learned every lesson <laughs> you can keep going a little further and and i feel like that that text also sort of supports that as
0: well yeah yeah so i love that fail case i think it's great and i i have really enjoyed playing the mechanic in strixhaven sealed we haven't done a draft yet but playing it in strixhaven sealed it's it's very cool to especially in seal where you just get all the lessons right like you don't have to think about it you don't have to like pick weird off-color lessons you might not be able to cast, but maybe you could with the treasure token. You just get all the ones that were in your pool. It's um, It's been a really fun mechanic in Sealed. I don't see myself toying with this in my own cube anytime soon, but I really like what you described about how this relates to other two-card or three-card mm-hmm. combos in cubes where this is the way to get a combo, but it's like a kind of build-your-own combo, right? Like you get to choose how you want to augment the learn card you draft mm-hmm. by, by drafting a lesson to to pair along with it and just give it this extra ability. Or you can, you know, if you want, have a lot of these cards in your cube and people draft learn learning lesson decks where they have actually a lot of options and they can totally. draft a lot of them. So I think it's very cool. Here's the last thing I want to say about learning lessons. I think people are perhaps overlooking how interesting it is that rummaging has now been given to all five colors, which is historically a red thing. But again, the fail case of learn is just rummaging, which is not a thing that like white has ever done or green has mm-hmm. ever done. Yeah. So all these cards that say learn on them, you know, they kind of have this added distraction where, like, maybe that card is just good enough if it's a rummage card in white or whatever. I, uh, I, you know, basically, I think if you have a cube that's looking at reanimator strategies and specifically slower reanimator, like, I don't think any of these cards are going to cut it in like, you know, in Tomb Grizzlebrand territory. But I know there's a lot of people out there where they're running the like four mana reanimation level where they're playing zombifies and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Uh, and in that situation, here you have a lot of enablers for discard outlets. On cards that wouldn't normally have that, like there are not hmm. that many discard outlets in a lot of these colors, like whites, for example, and just having a whole bunch of them now that are kind of disguised as lessons, or, or rather, kind of disguised as learn cards, but are actually maybe just rummaging cards i think it's very interesting that is interesting i definitely would always like that would be uh, not a reason not to put in a cube
1: um but it would be a big negative for a card if i was just including it for that text uh, yeah i i I I definitely try and cut down on noise and like text that doesn't matter uh, as much as possible because it is confusing people are going to overlook it because they'll be like wait are there not not even lessons what am i doing with this card
0: yeah all right anthony tell us about magecraft
1: all right, Magecraft is a pretty cool and pretty simple mechanic. Uh, if you're familiar with Prowess or a lot of these other card uh, kinds of mechanics like that, it's pretty similar. Uh, but it's just an input mechanic. So it says whenever you cast or copy an instant or sorcery, something happens. Uh, and what that is is different depending on exactly what card and what kind of uh, what college a card is in. What I really like about this is that unlike a lot of other faction sets, where each guild or each college, each faction is really focus on its own mechanic and doing its own thing everybody here in strixhaven is here to learn magic and learn how to cast spells so every single guild or sorry every college cares about (laughs) casting spells i'm gonna keep Um, calling them guilds (laughs) yes yeah (laughs) uh it's just everybody what they're actually going to do with that is going to be a little bit different so whether it's you know summon a pest or pump up your team or get plus and plus one counters and i really like it sort of as an extension to prowess because prowess is a little bit limited uh but also kind of broken in some older mechanics where you have a lot of really cheap you know artifacts and but here it also is just much more flexible and we can do all kinds of things with it but it still reads very cleanly
0: yeah it makes a lot of sense it feels like a mechanic that should have existed for a while <laughs> yeah. because there's a lot of cards that trigger on this effect. It just it seems like it'll fit in nicely. I do like seeing... This is another example of a thing that a lot of other colors don't really get. Like, I'm looking at, like, you know, Sedgemore Witch from my cube, that mm-hmm. three-mana black card. Like, black doesn't get stuff that triggers on casting instances sorceries until Strixhaven. And the same is kind of true for, like, green. Like, it's not really a thing green super gets to do. So, very interesting, again, to see the... Like, I love that a lot of cards have been thrown into a different context by colors getting this ability that they previously didn't have. I wonder if any of your color pie defender sirens are going off at these things showing up in all five colors, both the the rummaging from learn and now this care about spells, instance and sorceries hmm. triggering. That's
1: interesting. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of, there are a lot of bends in this set for sure. And Mark Rosewater talks a lot on his podcast about how, well, we can do certain bends if it matters for a specific set. Or there's a context that, uh, makes it appropriate and this is i think a perfect example where it's like spells matter is what the entire set is about so they're much more tolerant about adding some bends and i I, nothing really jumps out at me as a a problem not offended by them i'm not offended (laughs) that's my summary of the set
0: i I think magecraft is cool i i will say that i run in my cube both cards that trigger on non-creature spells and also cards that now trigger on magecraft Mm -hmm. or you know i already had for example like uh, the three mana saheeli from war of a spark and also like young pyromancer right which cards that just trigger on slightly different things yeah so that's irksome i would say Yeah, a little I mean, that's bit definitely... for cube designers where it's like it feels like these cards care about the same thing and they do f- for the most part but then there are exceptions which feel a little odd i think
1: yeah that's definitely a uh, another source of noise like we can talk about noise in yep. terms of like this has uh lesson or sorry this has learn even though you're never going to use the learn is one source of noise another is just that yeah things can be slightly different and if they were designing a set from scratch they would kind of cut out those marginal things that come up a small percentage of the time, in the interest
0: of just making it more readable by making it more consistent. Uh, it also gets back to the kinds of decisions we were talking about that eliminates the like bookkeeping, homeworky decisions of like figure out all of the options here because I have to actually process with mm-hmm. my brain what kind of trigger this is and think about it consciously, as opposed to being able to shortcut it by knowing that this is always the same as every other card that has this effect. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I historically have not really cared that much about keeping the cards in my cube simple, per se. Like, I don't mm-hmm. avoid complicated cards for, like, concern about keeping my players from getting confused. But that argument, I think, is, is strong when you think about the fact that you basically, with the more of those decisions you have, then you're just kind of, again, making people do yeah, that Yeah, I mean,
1: it's, it's not a matter of, like, oh, player has crossed threshold, now they are confused. <laughs> and, like, yeah. this is too complicated for them. It's just, like, the game is less fun if there's, you know ten percent more stuff you have to care about that doesn't really matter that right
0: much. or games that are decided by puns because oh crap I yeah. forgot that my I mean young Prime is a bad example because it's pretty iconic I think people know what triggers that but you mm-hmm. know uh you know my new Magecraft card is not triggered by my playing this zero CMC artifact or zero mana value artifact that one I will change I'm gonna keep calling them guilds but I, I will <laughs> change CMC to mana value anyway so that's the thing I don't know but I do like the mechanic a lot and it makes a lot of sense this next mechanic though is definitely my favorite in the set and i don't think most people would expect that wow. talk about ward ward is a mechanic that basically says that if a creature will become the target of a spell or ability the ward cost must be paid otherwise that spell or ability is countered i see a lot of people comparing this to hexproof because it is a protection mechanic and we don't have very many mechanics that protect our permanents from spells and abilities and so obviously comparing it to hexproof or shroud seems very natural but I think that does it a disservice because I really dislike Hexproof and Shroud, especially Shroud, but, you know, both of them. I really dislike the mechanics that just completely cut off a certain type of interaction from your opponent and demand a whole different kind of answer. It's like a, it's just a very binary thing. Like, the door is now closed on half of the things that interact with this, and now you have to come at it from a totally different a- approach. And the reason I love Ward so much is I actually do really like protection mechanics i like changing the decisions my opponent thinks they're going to be able to make right your card in your deck does this thing but now my card is going to slightly change what that card does right now your removal spell costs four mana or now your removal spell costs you three life in addition to the mana you were going to pay for it and i think that leads to really more interesting decisions whereas a hexproof or a shroud severely limits the interesting interesting decisions and just becomes a game of like well can i answer this in some other way or do i just die so I'm thrilled about Ward, and this is actually a new evergreen keyword. So this is going to be, you know, went, went from not even existing to right to evergreen. So this is going to show up in any set in the future, with Ward of some kind. And uh, I'm really excited about that, and I can't wait to see other kinds of Ward cards we get because this ability to just give something a little extra protection or a little extra effect if someone's going to target it, I think is great.
1: Yeah, and I think there's also a lot of interesting costs that can be associated with it as well that For make sure it a pretty flexible thing. You know, maybe it's like... In this set, we have, obviously, some mana costs that just makes your spells more expensive, but we also see life payment as a cost. Yep. Uh, and I could see, even in the future, like, uh, being able to, or requiring you to sacrifice a permanent or something. Yeah, bounce a
0: land to your hand, or, you know,
1: whatever. Yeah, which, which again, just, like, gives you more com- complex lines where you have to try and plan around how are you going to deal with this threat. Yeah. It's also interesting, this was a keyword that they previewed, or they mentioned before the set actually came out, that they were going to make a new evergreen keyword. I failed a little bit here. I missed the mark. My call was that it would be a tweak on prowess, because we knew that's something they have sort of been toying with for a right. while. It's like a known quantity that they're not super happy with in, in some ways. Um, but this also fits that bill. Like We've seen a lot of Ward-style effects, like uh, even Bone Crusher Giant. You forget, it, it might have extra text. No, no, yeah, I remember. Or... Um, uh, Glyph Keeper, or there was uh, one of the blue cards from Eldraine that again, like, caused you to pay a, a little bit of an extra cost, or Kazmina. So it's like, this is still not an unknown quantity. We've seen this effect a lot of times, but just sort of making it canonized, I think makes it a lot easier to process, because some of those have been a little bit tricky to remember.
0: Yeah, and I'll say that we have seen it before, but we don't see it as much as I would like. I would like far more Creatures and permanents to have a ward-like ability on them. because, Good news. Well, yeah, because like, and that's why I'm excited. This is, this is why it's the mechanic I'm most excited about, because, you know, we've talked a lot about, we've talked endlessly about Bane Slayers and Muldrifters, right?
1: Bane Slayer!
0: And this is one of the things that gives quote-unquote Bane Slayers way more range, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if you get to say, all right, well, here's my five mana, you know, super big threat that I need to untap with, there's some degree of tension here. But also, it's got ward four or something. Maybe four is too much. Maybe that's just actually proof. Maybe, maybe it's got ward three or something, where it's like this can this can be dealt with. But you are also going to spend a lot of mana to deal with this. So like, it's going to be an even exchange on tempo and cards as opposed to me getting blown out by a by a doom Blade or whatever.
1: Dies to doom
0: Blade. I I like that it's now. It felt like before it was to me mostly a binary. You know, things like Casmina and Kira the Glass Spinner, like those mm-hmm. things aside, and they really felt like they were kind of uh you know exceptions to the rule which was that things are either interactable or they're not for the most part and uh the non-interactive things never really sparked joy for me but i'm really glad we have now more points on this spectrum where things can be somewhat interactive and i can't wait to see how this works i really want just a bunch of sweet cheap aggro cards with you know ward on them just so it's like you know Give me me a one mana two one with Ward one, right? (laughs) You know, like I'm I'm in for that. You're not usually removing two ones anyway. You're usually blocking them, so it's not gonna be that good. But like
1: that's a real feel bad though. You already feel bad about spending your removal spell on a on a one mana creature.
0: Yeah, now it's gonna cost even more. I don't know. So stuff like that, I'm I'm really excited to see what we get from Ward, and I'm hoping that its inclusion as an evergreen mechanic is not just them making the rules simpler and basically condensing things down because it shows up sometimes, but actually an indication that they're gonna use it more is what I'm really hoping we'll see.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, now I'm kind of getting excited about it. There's so much space like are we going
0: to see equipments with Ward? Yeah. Hope so. Nice. All right. The last mechanic is modal double-faced cards. Again, do we have to keep doing this? <laughs> I, you know, I don't want to I don't want to say the same thing everyone's been saying about these cards, but I it must be said, they have so much text on them, Anthony. And we actually have been talking during this episode about complexity and the right kinds of decisions to make people make, and I am wary that a lot of the modal Double Face cards in Strixhaven are going to lead to the kinds of complexity that I am not trying to encourage, which is, this card has a bunch of text on it, most of it doesn't matter most of the time, but 10% of the time, that text will matter, and so if you don't read it every time or really memorize this entire complicated card and commit it to memory that it has these different modes on it, you are going to get punished by punting, when you forget that you're Plarg, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, you can actually spend five mana to cast a random spell off the top of your deck, or you can, you know, do something else with it, so...
1: I mean, or just much more clearly, if I'm just playing Plarg in my mono-red deck, how, how much more clear can text that literally doesn't matter then there's a whole other card in my deck that I just cannot cast. Or worse, You like, know, except the one time where I have a treasure token, and I, I, was I forget, gonna say, like, oh, <laughs> I actually could have done this. I was
0: gonna say, I do have Plarg in my seal pool from Strixhaven, and I'm playing Prismari, and I do have things to make ways to make treasures, and I'm like, how often is it gonna be right to cast this other side of his card, which, sitting here right now, Anthony, I don't even know what it does. I have no idea.
1: <laughs> so... I think the other side is quite a bit better, actually.
0: Uh, yeah, it does, it does look pretty decent. So, yeah, I don't... <sighs> I love modal cards. I love Mm -hmm. them. We've talked about this at length. I love giving my players decisions. A card like Shark Typhoon or a card like Starnheim Unleashed sparks a lot of joy for me. I really like those cards and I'm always looking to include more of them in my cube. This is my least favorite implementation of modal cards by a pretty big margin. There's all the practical things we've talked about where you have card on, text on both sides of the card. You have to like flip cards around in the draft. It gives away some information or whatever. That's frustrating. But also, it's just the fact that they have so much real estate on both mm-hmm. sides of the card. And when one side is not a land... like I, I really like the Strixhaven multiple double face cards. I, I like them. I enjoy playing with them. I think they're powerful. Uh, I would love to see more of those. You mean Zendikar Rising? Thank you. <laughs> Zendikar Rising, the one about lands. I really like those cards. I'd love to see more of those. The ones from Caldheim and now the ones from Haven they are just, they're not doing it for me. It's just, it's too much. I think it's too much and it's going to lead to the kinds of decisions. It's going to make games decided by the kinds of things I don't want games decided by, I think. Yeah, it's fair. I mean, I
1: think fortunately uh, for me as a player that plays mostly limited in cube, I'm just not going to include these in my cube. Right. uh, Obviously. Because we're going to do a set review, I've spent a lot of time trying to read and trying to get my head around these, but when I sit down and play games in my cube, they're just not going to be there. Uh, and in Limited, they're at relatively higher rarities, and they come up every once in a while and you just, you know, do your homework, eat your vegetables, read the, the block of text that your opponents cast or whatever. Um, so they're not really a huge issue. I'm not here to complain, but I, I don't like
0: them. <laughs> yeah, I don't like them either. It's just how it is. It's 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 actually more. I so want than... to like them though. Like you you have a, you have a stronger opposition to like flipping cars around and stuff than I do. Uh, like that may be true. Like you're down. You're you're also pretty low on the Zendikar Rising model double-faced cards, yeah. which I like quite a bit. I think these could work, and the way they could work is if the sides were much simpler. <laughs> So much simpler. But even then,
1: you're kind of expecting your players know the cards or they're flipping them around in the draft. And that's just like. So but I'm saying clunky. I'm
0: willing to let them flip things around in the draft. Huh. That's not my actual problem with these cards. My problem with these cards is that it's not like one side is a two mana shock and one side mm-hmm. is a, you know, a three mana 3 3. Like that card would be cool to me uh, in different colors or whatever. Um, the My problem with it is that both sides are like some of the most complicated cards we've seen printed in recent history. Like they have yeah. just so much text on them. And it's just. Yeah, it, it's really. I, I love complicated cards, and I think i got to be pretty squarely in the uh, enfranchised magic player category where they're not worried about printing complicated cards, but these aren't coming near my cube, I don't think.
1: Fortunately for us, there are so many great magic cards that we're not really giving up by uh, oh, yeah. overlooking these
0: a yeah, little bit. Yeah, to be clear, I don't wanna, I'm don't want i not here to complain about it. I'm just saying that, yeah, I, I, fa- I fall into the same camp. Too much text, not for me.
1: You know what my biggest issue is, actually? uh Well, maybe biggest is strong. (laughs) There are all those issues. But I feel like, especially if you look at some early designs for gold cards, they often just sort of felt like a menu. It's just like, hey, pick two. And the effects don't really interact with each other. It doesn't really tell a story about what the card is for. And these feel like they... They're calling back to that, where it's just like, yeah, you can cast side A or you can cast side B. Maybe if you're playing a constructed where you have duplicates of them, they kind of interact and the way you sequence them gets more interesting. But in limited or singleton environments, it's just kind of like, here's two different spells taped together. Uh, Yeah. And that's just not resonant or exciting to me.
0: Yeah. Then yet to that point, none of the flavor, like, flavor could go a long way to making you not have to flip that card over to remind yourself what that other side did. Like,
1: I mean, the flavor is it's about, like, a lot of them are the Deans and it's about the tension between
0: these two colors and how they. I'm sure the flavor's there, but, <laughs> but it's, it's like, oh, it's here's a red card. It's shrouded behind so much yeah. complexity that it does not resonate, like you said. It does not it does not stick in my head. It's not sticky. It really doesn't. So, yeah, Augusta, Dean of Order. Pretty good card. We knew when they printed the Metal Double Face cards in Zendikar Rising they were going to be in Kaldheim and Strixhaven, but they have not said there are in any other future sets, right? Are we, are we pretty safe to assume that we are going to get a break from these for a little bit? I think we're going to get at least a break. Yeah so i mean i like strixhaven a lot insistent sorceries matter is a really satisfying theme to me for a set and it touches on a lot of things i like like i said ward is great i think magecraft is great uh lesson and learn i think is a really interesting design space to explore with this outside the game territory and making these kind of little toolbox cards so i really like the set a lot i um I'm excited to specifically, we'll talk more about this during the set review show, but I'm specifically excited a lot about the Magecraft white cards and like the Clever Lumamancer and the Leonin Light Scribe, especially. Yeah. And I think I'm going to be pushing my white section a little further away from like bread and butter aggro into kind of two different ways the white section can go. One way is like Thalia, Vrindwing Mare. I am a creature-based deck, and the other way is Luma Mancer, Light Scribe, I am a spell-based deck, and let people kind of draft around those. And I, I I'm, I think it's going to be a really fun thing to try out. I'm looking forward to doing it.
1: Yeah, maybe make uh, Monastery Mentor have a a little bit more of a home than it has recently.
0: Yeah. What are you most excited about from this set, Anthony?
1: Uh, I think, again, as I often am, I, I think that as they... You know, obviously there's some powerful cards and a lot of people are excited to, you know, have strict replacements to upgrade cards they think have been a little bit underpowered in their cube. I'm often excited about these sort of like cards in the middle that are kind of filling in spaces or give me a lot more flexibility to tweak things. So I'm really excited about cards like Frost Trickster. That's just going to be a Frost Lynx, but that can actually get through damage and kind of make this sort of like lower power tempo blue archetype work a little bit better. And a card like Emergent Sequence, which seems kind of busted when you first read it but really it's just a two-mana dork that interacts with counters and interacts with landfall and all these things. So uh that that's again where I find a lot of joy in every new set. Sweet. All
0: right, well, that's it for this episode of Lucky Paper Radio. I want to thank everybody for the messages of condolences we got last week. Um obviously still a very hard thing for us not going to get over it anytime soon, but um you know, I I rely on podcasts a lot when I am going through a difficult time in my life. I have many shows I've been listening to for a decade or more, and I just get a lot of comfort out of them. And so, want to keep making the show because maybe this is that for somebody out there listening. So, so yeah, we're gonna we're gonna soldier on and uh, and do our thing, but uh, it's gonna be hard for a while. So, yeah. thank you for your patience. I'll I'll echo that and just you know.
1: In case it's not clear, we're not making any money on the show. In fact, we're losing money. This is just mm-hmm. a thing we do because very slowly losing we money. We <laughs> love the game, and more than that, we love the game because we love the community. I mean, there's no surprise we both love magic and cooking. It's like creative, problem solved. Mm-hmm. We get to work our brains, but most importantly, it's a way to bring people together. Uh, and so all of the the feedback, all the ratings, all the reviews, the emails uh, that we get from from people on the show just is a really has been a great anchor in a difficult year.
0: Yeah. So anyway, so thank, you. thank you all. All of our music is produced by DJ James Nasty. All of the magic cards are made by Wizards of the Coast. Listening is done by you, and all the talking is done by me and my friend Anthony. Thanks for talking about magic with me, Anthony. Thanks for
1: talking about magic with me, Anthony.
0: We are physically in the same space for the first time ever oh, recording this show. God. I think you talked way faster. <laughs> just being in the same room as me make you talk way I have faster. Different energy. You have a very different energy. I'm uncomfortable. with
1: thing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you're uncomfortable. I just think the words came out no, of your I'm mouth just trying much to think faster. Like
0: Griffin, Griffin McElroy. Never mind. <laughs> I don't. I don't know the reference. By the time he ate a banana with the peel on. I'm uncomfortable
1: with the energy we're creating in the studio. Oh, sure, sure, <laughs> sure, sure, sure,
0: sure, sure. <laughs> I am very uncomfortable with the energy that we've created in the studio today.